So we're going to be diving back into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me there? If you're new and you're visiting with us for the first time, we've been in a series over the last several uh, months now, really, uh, studying together a letter that one of the leaders in the early Christian movement, the Apostle Paul, wrote to a fledgling group of Christians in this metropolitan city of Corinth. And so we've been kind of walking through this letter. This morning we reach the climax. It is the high point. He's talking to them, he's talking to us about resurrection and the future of all things. And so this is interesting, it's exciting stuff, and so we're going to be diving into it this morning, but let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and that you would speak to us. And we ask, oh God, that your voice of hope would be stronger than all of the voices of cynicism and despair around us. We pray, O oh God, that you would strengthen us afresh this morning as we study together your word and that you would form and shape us to be a hope-filled, joyful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a very personal question. I think for many of us, it's going to be a very vulnerable question. And the question is this, what role does eschatology play in your life? Somebody says, esco, what? Honey, did he say something about Eskimos? I don't even, what is he talking about? Eschatology, what is that all about? Well, the word eschatology is taken from the Latinized Greek word eschatos, which means last. And so eschatology is the study of last things. It's the study of end times. And so the question I'm asking you is, what role does the study, does the vision of end times, of the last things, play in your life? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking what role does the study of what's called oftentimes the signs of the times play in your life. You know, there's a lot of people whose hobby when it comes to Christianity is trying to match up events in Bible prophecy with events in the newspaper. And anytime somebody sneezes in the Middle East, they say it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. You know, and these are people who try to map out, you know, well, there's Russia and there's China and they're going to come together and invade the Middle East. And that's Gog and Magog and Ezekiel and this sort of thing. But, and, and of course, these are primarily the issues that come to our mind when we think of end times of last things, because over the last 50 years, there's been this flood of popular level books and literature and movies that have kind of come into the American you know, market, and they've generated lots of revenue, and they've captured the imagination of many people. And so back in the 70s, there was a book published called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and he kind of tried to map out all the event, current events and how they matched up with Bible prophecy. About that same time, there was the release of the eschatological cult classic B-movie, A Thief in the Night. If you haven't watched this, you should YouTube it. It is awesome, and when I was in sixth grade, it was terrifying. I remember I'd cry myself to sleep at night, praying that Jesus wouldn't rapture my parents and leave me behind as an 11-year-old to fend for myself. <laughs> then, of course, in the 90s, there was the publication of the wildly popular 12-volume uh, eschatological sci-fi thrillers, Thief or Left Behind, which became a movie starring the one and only Kirk Cameron. And then, of course, in 2014, it was remade, right? It has to be now at the tail end of... Uh, 
Nicolas Cage's career. There was a, another movie that Left Behind put out again, and again, kind of depicting the events of the end. But you know, I think probably the climax, the best of all of kind of the eschatological, popular level, you know, stuff that's come out. And certainly, my favorite is uh, some of you might not know about this one, but it was called Judgment Day, starring Mr. T, which is just fantastic. <laughs> But it's a shame that this is what comes to mind when we think eschatology, when we think end times and last things, because this is not what came to mind to the writers of the early Christian literature, the New Testament. It's not what came to mind for Jesus. You see, what came to mind for them and what's really at the center of Christian eschatology, of the Christian vision of the end, is the coming of God to reclaim his world for God's own self and to drive out injustice and darkness and everything that's wrong in the world. God would come again in Jesus Christ from heaven to earth and put the world to rights. And this is what's at the very heart of the Christian eschatological vision of the future. And this is important because what you believe about the future has bearing on how you live today. You know, there was a, a, a tale told of, uh, you know, two men that were thrown in prison and one was given the job of, of making uh, widgets or wadgets for the widgets or widgets for the wadgets, for the what's-its, the who's-its. It was a Dr. Seuss tale. Um, and, and they were given the, the job of making these, these widgets, and they were told that at the end of a year, we'll pay you $20,000. And the other person who was put kind of at a seat to make these widgets was told that at the end of a year, he would be making $2 million. Now, which one of those two people is going to work a little bit better on those widgets? It's probably the one who has the grander, more expansive, expansive vision of the future. And so too with us, when we have a compelling vision of what God is going to do in the future, it informs how we parent, how we spend our money, the sacrifices we make, the way we love neighbors, and the way we engage with roommates in the present. Your vision of the future determines how you live in the present. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want us to talk together about this central event in the future for Christians, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be talking together about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are new to Christianity, I just want to invite you just to pause for a second and just kind of suspend judgment. And I want you to grapple with the picture that we're given here of Christian hope because it's beautiful and it's compelling and it is audacious. So we're going to be looking together at what Paul says about the second coming. And the first thing I want to draw to your attention from the text is what happens when Jesus Christ returns. And I want you to see this in the text, what happens when Jesus Christ returns. And the first thing I want you to note is that when Jesus Christ returns, death will be overturned and the dead will be raised. Look at the way he puts it in chapter 15, verse 20. He says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says here that Christ is the firstfruits. He's the first installment. He's the very beginning of a harvest that is to come. And what is that future harvest to come? Well, Jesus' victorious resurrection over death 
means that in the future, all those who trust in Christ will be victorious over death. In other words, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was not for Christ alone. Rather, it was so that all of us could share in the victory of Christ. His resurrection was not just a wondrous event that confirms his status before God. It is the beginning of a much greater harvest. And so he goes on, he says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But then he turns our attention to the order. He says, what's gonna happen when Christ comes? Then he says this, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then those Then at his coming, those who belong to him. You know, this week, I went to visit a longtime family in our church, uh, Gunther and Joy Terampi. And I had a a, a nice visit with Gunther, and Gunther is now entering into his last couple weeks of life, and his, his life is being taken away from him. And he is becoming a little more emaciated, and he's lost his voice, and he's becoming weaker, and you have this strong, faithful man of God who's having his life taken away. And it looks temporarily like cancer and like death has won. But the great hope that we see in the resurrection of Jesus is death has not won. That the day is coming when the verdict of cancer will be overturned by the love and the power of God, and Gunther will be raised again physically and bodily from the dead, and joy will once again hold him and dance with him, and they will look into each other's eyes, and she will see his face, because our future is not a future of disembodied souls hovering six inches above the ground, which to me is not very compelling. But in the kingdom of God, we will walk and we will run and we will dance and we will eat and we will drink and death and darkness will not have its way over the world and over our bodies and over our lives because Christ has been raised from the dead. Remember that movie? Some of you might, some of you weren't born yet. Ghost, Demi Moore, Patrick Swayze classic, you know, 1990, and the whole drama in that movie circles around the fact that, you know, Patrick Swayze has died, and his lover, Demi Moore, remains, and the whole tension is, is that although they kind of are aware of each other's presence, Patrick Swayze has no flesh and blood to hold, and this is the dilemma, But the Christian hope is that one day God will raise us bodily in embodied existence and we will be together again with those we love. But when will this great event happen? Well, notice what it says in the text. It will happen at his coming. He says, each in his own turn, Christ the first roots, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. Or as he puts it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Or as John Calvin memorably put it, I love this, he says, as therefore a commander, as therefore a commander with the sound of a trumpet summons his army to battle. 
You think about a commander there. I remember when I read this quote, I thought about, this quote, I thought about uh, the, the, the chairman of our leadership team, uh, Larry James, who's a retired three-star general. And sometimes, you know, the board is encountering big, massive problems, and we look over at Larry and we say, Larry, this is a three-star problem. You better handle this. But listen, overturning sin and death and darkness goes way beyond a three-star problem. What you need for this one is the commander of angels' armies. And he will descend, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one whose love is stronger than death. And Calvin says, with the sound of a trumpet, like a, like a general that summons his army to battle, so Christ, by his sounding proclamation, which will be heard throughout the earth, will summons the dead. So this will happen when Christ returns. The dead will be raised. But it raises a question because somebody says, well, look, that sounds like it, it's happening in the future. What happened to those who we love who die today? I mean, more personally, what happens to my Grandma Thea? Where is Grandma Thea right now? And of course, the Bible answers that question by saying to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it draws upon the metaphor of rest in order to describe those who die in the Lord today. They are at rest in God. They sleep in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think my favorite moment in all the week is on Sunday afternoon when we get home from church and it's been a long, draining day and we settle the house down, we quiet it down, and my wife and I go up into the bedroom and we lie down and we take a nap. And it is delicious. It is delicious. But could you imagine resting, but not an unconscious rest, but resting aware, but resting in the unrelenting, unmitigated, eternal love of God? That is rest. But like every good nap, there comes a time to wake up. And one day the dead will be raised up again to life in Christ. But that raises another question. Well, what happens to those who don't die? If at the second coming of Christ, the dead are raised, what happens for that generation of people that are alive when Jesus Christ returns? Well, Paul answers that question with a mystery. And look at what he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And he holds out this mysterious, this fascinating possibility that there is a generation who will be alive when Jesus Christ returns. Now just imagine, I don't know about you, but... Um, I, I, I'm already wearied in the, the, at the very start of this new election cycle. I've watched a couple of the Democratic debates. You know, I'm watching kind of the circus that is our federal government right now. And um, I was just thinking, you know, think about a, a year from now, you know, once the Democrats kind of whittle it down and they got their guy to come against or their gal to come against Trump and, and you know, November 6, 2020, like you're going down to the polls to vote and you're just like, oh, come on. Is this as good as it gets? Is this all we have to choose from? 
You know, and you get down there, and then all of a sudden, like, like a, a massive trumpet and like lightning from east to west, and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, God breaks into human history and says, don't worry, we don't have another term of one of these, another four years of these guys. We have an eternal reign of God on earth, driving out the darkness and the injustice and the impression and the racism and the hate and making everything resurrection new. That would be a good November 6th next year, wouldn't it? Even so, come quick, Lord Jesus. Now, so there will be this generation that's alive when Jesus Christ returns, who will meet Christ and be transformed. But I, I want to develop something here. And for some of you, this might be of interest. For others, you may just need to kind of like endure this for the next five minutes. But you should probably like lean in anyway. <laughs> but you know, many have taught that this event of the transformation of the living believers when Christ returns will actually not happen at the physical bodily return of Jesus, but will happen seven years before that in a secret rapture. In other words, there are some people, and maybe some of you believe this, some of you have taught this. I actually, at one point in my life, I believed this very strongly. I taught it. Uh, I had all the charts out, and I would kind of go over all this stuff, and I was into it. And, um, but what I taught, and what many have taught, is that there won't be one second coming, but actually two. One where Christ will come secretly before a seven-year tribulation and take his church out of the world, and then one where Christ will come publicly from heaven to earth. And so in this picture, the future hope of the church is a secret rapture, not the public visible return of Jesus Christ. But my position has come to be, and what I've switched my position on, is I've come to see that actually the great hope of the church, the great hope of the New Testament, according to my own study, what I think about this, is not a secret rapture that happens before a tribulation, but the public, visible coming of Jesus Christ when every eye will see him, at which time the dead will be raised, the living transformed, and death will be destroyed. Now, I want to just give you a brief argument as to why I changed my position on this. And I, I will say, just as a caveat, there are good Bible-believing Christians who disagree with me, and that's fine. Like, you don't all, we don't all have to uh, agree together to be friends and to be in the same body of Christ. That's one of the beautiful things about this church is that we have some diversity on some of the non-essentials, but we come together in unity. So I just want you to know, if when you hear what I say right now, you disagree with me, you have every right in the world to be wrong. I'm just kidding. But... But I'll give you my, my position, because I'm your pastor, and I, I feel compelled, you know, to give you my best take on the scripture. So there's three reasons why I changed my mind from two comings of Christ, a secret coming in the rapture and a public coming with the return of Christ from heaven to earth, to this more simplified <laughs> version that what we wait for is the bodily, physical return of Jesus Christ. And the first is a historical reason. Do you realize that although... Although this particular view that many American Christians hold to, that there's going to be this secret rapture, although this view is very popular and it's there demonstrated in our Left Behind novels and our movies that were in the late great planet Earth and, 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 and it's taught in many seminaries and it's very, very common in American Christianity. Do you realize that for the first 1800 years of the church's history, nobody believed that? So this is a late comer on the theological map. 
There was a man named J.N. Darby who in the early part of the 19th century, he was was an Irish Anglican. He broke off of the Anglican church and he started the, he was one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren. And he's the guy who, who, who divided the coming of Christ into two comings, a secret coming and a public coming. And then he came to the United States on travel and he connected with the Bible conference movement which was massive in the mid 19th century. And so a lot of his views became associated with that movement and got disseminated in that movement. And many of the leaders that started some of the great uh, evangelical seminaries in the United States, Talbot Seminary and uh, Biola University, uh, Dallas Seminary, they were started by guys who were influenced by this Bible conference movement and by the teachings of J.N. Darby. Wonderful, Jesus-fearing, God-fearing, you know, Bible-believing people. And then these views got really instantiated in the minds of, of, of the broader evangelical or Christian world at that time through the publication of a study Bible called the Schofield Study Bible. Anybody here ever have a Schofield Study Bible? And those gave you all kinds of notes where you could just read your Bible through the lens of Schofield. And that's what many people did. But I just want to point out that this is a latecomer in sort of church history. And I find it difficult to read these, I I find it, I'm, I'm wary of embracing a view that the church has not known for 1800 years. Now, it's not unheard of. Sometimes the church does come across something that actually we've missed for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's possible. If that's your view, God bless you. I think that's, that's, there's, there's respectable reasons for it, but that's not, I can't be convinced of that. So after the historical reason though, and, and more importantly, is the biblical reason. So there are three key texts when it comes to this idea of what happens to living Christians when Christ returns. And the first is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. We quoted it early. The Lord himself will descend with a cry and the voice of an archangel and the dead will be raised and so on and so forth. And the living, he says, will be caught up and will be transformed. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 57. These are the three key texts on the question, what happens to those who are alive, that generation that sees the coming of Christ? Now I ask you, do any of these texts mention a seven-year tribulation between the transformation of believers and the second coming of Christ? Answer class, no. (laughs) And so you have to insert it in there from other sources. And I have a hard time inserting into the text what I don't get from a plain reading of the text. And so those are the biblical reason. But I think that the most, cons- one, of the, the main, one of the main issues after the historical and the biblical is the theological reason. And listen, here's, I kind of want to develop this for a minute. And this is important. Listen, it is possible that if you think about the future in terms primarily of being zapped off the planet, that you can actually miss out on the true nature of biblical hope. You see, some Christians, I think, caught up in these thoughts, begin to view Christian hope much like the movie Star Wars. And you remember kind of the the narrative arc of the first Star Wars movie, the greatest Star Wars movie, the 1977 Star Wars movie, A New Hope? You with me? Come on, people. Like, what's the narrative arc? Well, Chewbacca, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, the two droids, they travel to the Death Star 
to rescue Princess Leia and take her off the Death Star so that they can turn around and destroy the Death Star. And for some people, this is how they view the future. God's going to take us off the planet so that he can turn around and destroy the planet. But friends, this is not the nature of biblical hope. In the vision of the prophets, in the writings of the apostles, in the teaching of Jesus, the vision is not that Christ would take us off the earth. The hope is that God would break into our present earth and set the world to rights. You know, there's this text in Isaiah. It's this beautiful text. It's old prophet Isaiah. He's suffering under oppression, and there's these foreign leaders that have all this huge military might, and they're oppressing people and destroying. And Isaiah is being oppressed and destroyed, and he, he looks up to God, and he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, come into this world of injustice and set it right. And then a little bit later, Jesus comes on the scene, and he teaches his followers to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may your kingdom break into this world. May your kingdom of love and justice, your healing, justifying rule, may it break into this world full of oppression and violence and racism and cancer and meth and porn and everything that dehumanizes human life. Would you break in and would you establish your good rule in this world? And the final picture we get of the future in Revelation 21 and 22 is not of us being taken off of the earth and being zapped into heaven. It's of heaven, the new Jerusalem coming down to earth to renew and restore what is broken. And friends, this is what Christian hope is about. It's about paradise that was lost in the garden being regained. And that's why at the end we get a vision of these trees that are given for the healing of the nations. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, Paul says in Romans, so that it might share in the glorious liberty of the children of God. And at the very end, God, what he says over the world is he says, behold, look, I make all things new. He doesn't say, I'm scrapping the old and I'm making all new things. He says, I make all things new. That which was infected by sin and human brokenness will be healed and will be made whole again through the powerful, risen Jesus who was victorious over sin and death. You know, it is hard to put into words just how audacious this Christian vision of the future really is. You know, back when uh, I was uh, reading this book, I, I think it was called From Good to Great by Jim Collins. It was kind of one of these business books. Some of you might have read it. But in this book, he talks about what he calls BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. And listen, God has a big, hairy, audacious goal for the world. The tyrants, the oppressors, the despotic rulers the drug addicts and the drug dealers 
and the porn makers and spreaders and everything that's kind of dehumanizing the world, the violence in the world, the, the, the power struggles and all of the internal emotional struggles within depression and deep anxiety and all of these things that are just crushing to us. God is going to come and drive out that darkness and establish his rule in the world again. He will not hand the world over to the darkness. Darkness and all of the rulers of darkness, the oppressors will not win in this world. But the love of God in Jesus Christ will win. There's this great line in the third volume of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, when after Samwise Ganji has you know, gone off to the mountains of Mordor to destroy with Frodo the ring of power, he comes back and, and he wrestled up there, he was passed out and they carry him back and, and as he's back in the houses of healing, he's laying in his bed and he wakes up after days of just being out. And he, he opens his eyes and there's Gandalf. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And you could imagine Mary on that first Easter Sunday walking to the empty tomb and encountering the risen Jesus and saying, Jesus, I thought you were dead. I thought we all were dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And listen, because God raised Jesus from the dead, everything sad will one day come untrue. There's coming a day, says John the Revelator, when there will be no more tears or crying or pain, for the former things will be no more. And God says, I will wipe every tear from your eye. And this is our great hope. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and make everything new. But I want you just to note as we close how Paul ends this great discussion on Christian hope. He says, verse 58, he says, therefore, Christ will return, the dead will be raised, the living transformed, death overturned, all the enemies of darkness that are fighting against God and his ways and our own hearts and lives in this world will ultimately be driven out and Christ's loving reign will be established on earth. And he says, therefore, in light of this, look at what he says, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You ever feel like giving up? I mean, honestly, like maybe, maybe you're, you're seeking to live into generosity and sacrifice and give more or hospitality and open your home more and welcome neighbors in and, or, or adoption and foster care and take in little ones into your home or, or you're fighting against, you know, you're, you're a nurse or you're in healthcare and you're, you're fighting against, you know, the cancer that's taking the children in your ward or you're fighting against, you're a therapist and you're, you're fighting against the anxieties and depression that are crippling for people and you're engaged in this work as a parent or, or as a, as a, as a, as a child or as a neighbor or whatever, and you just feel like, like it seems like it, I'm working, but it's not working. Have you felt like giving up? Paul says, don't give up. Be steadfast. Be immovable. 
You are working right now with every act of justice and generosity, with every act of hope, with every kind word that you speak, with every listening ear that you offer, with every tender hand that reaches out to care for somebody who's hurting and sick and homeless and dying. You are working in the grain of where history is ultimately going, to the kingdom of God. Your labor is not in vain. So don't give up. I just finished reading this, this massive uh, biography on the life of Frederick Douglass. And it, it's monumental. It's just this incredible story. And it tracks his life where he's a runaway slave and he gains his freedom. And he engages in the work of abolition. And then he raises awareness about the issues at stake that are really at stake in the Civil War. This isn't about saving the, the nation. This is about cleansing the sin of slavery out of this nation. And then at the end of the Civil War, he, he's, he's in political life and he's continuing his tours of, uh, and he's continuing to speak against Jim Crow laws and he's working for reconstruction and he does this for decades and decades and decades in his life. And what's so discouraging about the book is that no matter how prominent he gets, no matter how, how strongly his voice is heard in the American culture, he is still Jim Crowed when he rides on a train and when he rides on a ship. And he still has friends who are getting lynched in the South. And it seems like they're working and working and what's happening? Well, at the end of his life, there's a young civil rights activist, this strong, bold, African-American woman, Ida B. Wells. And she comes on the scene on the year when there was the most lynchings in the history of our country, the, single, the, the year with the single highest number of lynchings. And she's out trying to get the word out. She's publishing these pamphlets, but she is utterly discouraged and distraught. And she writes to Frederick Douglass, and he writes back to her these words. He says, brave woman, you have done for your people and mine a service. If American conscience were only half alive, if the church and clergy were only half Christianized, a scream of horror, shame, and indignation would rise to heaven wherever your pamphlet is read. And he keeps writing, and then he goes on, he says, look, it often feels like we have been deserted by both earth and heaven. But then he says this, yet, yet, boldly he says, we must still think, speak, and work, and trust in the power of a merciful God for final and complete deliverance. He, his hope was anchored not in what his efforts or Ida B. Wells' efforts were going to ultimately accomplish in the earth, but ultimately that God would not turn his back forever, but he would break in and would make everything right. And it was that hope for the future that drove and sustained his action in the present. And it is this hope, when your heart is rooted in this hope, that can sustain you when you feel like giving up to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we, 
we, we confess that we cannot build your kingdom by our efforts. It will take your, your mercy and a mighty act for you to bring it in at last. But we pray, oh God, that you would compel us, that you would inspire us, that you would strengthen us to build for your kingdom here and now to engage in acts of justice, to speak words of truth, to create genuine beauty, to give our lives away in sacrificial and generous ways for our neighbors. God, enable us, oh God, to be your witnesses in this world. Witnesses that this world is not all there is, that there is a new heavens and new earth coming that you are king and you will reign on earth yet. God, fill us with this hope. And even as we wait in the midst of struggle, in the midst of our own darknesses and our many difficulties, we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.